This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to possibly the best cable movie and prison movie ever made. But more on that in a second. It's The Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, and Bob Gutton. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are welcoming the last of our immediate family members to the show. My brother-in-law and regular listener, Keith Techmeyer, is coming on to discuss arguably the best war movie of all time for this coming Veterans Day, Saving Private Ryan, starring Tom Hanks, Vin Diesel, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, and Matt Damon. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can now sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And as always, please follow, like, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We'd love to have more listeners to the show. So with that, we will welcome in our new guest to the show, digital strategist, thought leader, writer, podcaster of the Google Digital Show, former team member of Fox Broadcasting and Academy of Motion Science Arts and Pictures, excuse me, I screwed that up, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences member, Chris Hood. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask just a few quick questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So, first, just tell us a little about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Sure, absolutely. So, as you said, my name is Chris Hood. I'm a digital strategist. I work for Google Cloud right now. I host a podcast called That Digital Show. I have 35 years of experience in media and entertainment. I started my career actually in films way back when, when I was selling movie tickets and sweeping up popcorn at a local movie theater. And it was great. It was the year that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out. And so it was a new theater, new movie, popcorn. I was hooked from a very early age around movies. And so I've followed my passion throughout my career and I've worked with several studios and now I'm working within the media and entertainment space at Google. Excellent. So, You might have already mentioned it, but what is your favorite movie and why? My favorite movie and why? Well, geez, there are so many favorite movies. I think at the top of my list, and if I was just to rattle off two, I would say Casablanca and Back to the Future. Two completely different movies, but two very incredible, loving movies. Yes, Casablanca, I mean, you just cannot go wrong with so many elements of that film from the acting to the story to just the feeling that it provides while you're watching it. It's just one of those films that after you watch it, you feel, you know, that was a movie. And I like to say, they don't make movies like that anymore. (laughs) They're barely making movies at this point. I mean, it's all TV. 
so then the final question for us, uh, what makes a good movie for you? Wow. I think there's a lot of things that make a good movie. But if I was to try to simplify this into one element, it's something that is unique. Now, that is very hard for us, right? Because I think a lot of us are desensitized to most of the action. We're all looking at the cinematography or the special effects. We have actors that we're pretty much familiar with. It is really hard to impress us anymore. And I think for a lot of us, we're jaded also in that process. So how do you find something that is just unique, that is something interesting that you can latch onto and walk away from the theater and say, I enjoyed that. There is something just different that I saw there that I haven't seen before. It's almost like if you go to a new restaurant and you try some dish and you say, mm, that was a good meal. And I just want to find something that is interesting, appealing, different, whether that's a story, whether that's some element to it, maybe it's music or you know, maybe it is a special effects, but it has to be unique and interesting so that I can leave the theater with something to take away and remember. What you're almost describing, and I'm just trying to process here, it almost seems somewhat intangible in quality. Yeah, definitely. Huh. Yeah, I mean, we could all say that was a good score. Well, if it's John Williams, it should be a good score. You know, <laughs> yeah. that was good acting. Well, yeah, you know, acting is all going to be subject to interpretations. That was incredible special effects. I mean, we can pinpoint a lot of things in a lot of movies that we like or we don't like. But very rarely do we leave a movie and say, I just feel good about what I just saw. And that's that unique special sauce, you want to call it, that is definitely intangible. And, and, but it's the things that we remember the most when we leave the theater. So all of that is encompassing to what we're going to talk about right now. I'll start it off with this. I, I made two monikers when we started the show tonight, that this might be the best cable movie and the best prison movie ever. So let's start with cable movie. I think this movie, more than almost any other one, is associated with TNT, TBS, and being on reruns on cable through the 90s and 2000s. And this is where people picked up and had such a special affinity for it and kind of had what you described, Chris, as being the essence or that connection with it, almost a gut feeling that you can't really describe. And I haven't seen this movie for a few years, but it struck me because I think I was going to put it on for like 10 minutes and just start the film the other night before I was going to go to bed. And all of a sudden it's an hour later because this movie is just so rewatchable that that's why it's such a good cable movie is that you're going to continue through all of the commercial breaks, but it doesn't matter where you pick up in the movie. You can just instantly watch it. And I think no more factor is evident of that, that I think, Dad, what was it? You'd seen this movie like 20 times and hadn't seen the beginning before you finally saw that like opening scene where he's in the trial. I, I, I guess I'll bring this up now. What had happened was is I wanted to see this movie and when it was released and it was where we lived at that time, we only had Tom and his, uh, his first sister and we had to have a sitter and we had to go to uh, travel about 40 minutes to get to a movie theater. That's how remote we were. And uh, 
we got there late, so I never saw the opening scene. The scene I saw was them coming into the prison. And then for 20 years, I would be flipping through the cable stations, and oh, Shawshank Redemption, I'll watch it. And I never saw the beginning until about five years ago when I said, you know, I should watch it from the very beginning. So I never saw any of that. I wonder if this movie actually works a little bit better if they skip that opening, because I think the reveal that he's actually innocent might work more. But I I guess, Chris, I'll put it at this. Where would you rank this in the terms of all-time cable movies? Because I put this right up there with A Few Good Men as being like at the top. Yeah, I, I'm just going to touch a little bit on what you're saying. I, I was in the same boat. When I worked at the movie theater, I would get a half an hour break. And during my half an hour break, I would sneak in to watch a movie. And so all of my movies throughout the 90s, I basically watched in half an hour chunks. And I had to adjust my break schedule. So I'd be like, okay, I watched the first half. I'm going to jump in here now around the mid-half. And every 30 minutes, trying to until I saw the complete film. But yes, from a cable perspective, obviously this movie got a lot of play over and over and over and over on cable. And one of the things I think we're talking about is not just rewatchability of it, but there are certain movies where you might be flipping the channel and when you land on the channel, you start watching it and you keep watching it. And this movie is definitely one of those movies And because of that, no matter where you are in the storyline, as it's flipping through, you're like, "Mm, oh, what's this? I'm going to watch it. And then you're hooked. And then all of a sudden, it's an hour and a half later. So that's one of the reasons I think this has such incredible popularity from a cable perspective, for sure. Oh, yeah. Andy just got the rock hammer. Oh, sure. I'll watch a few minutes. Oh, no. He just got to doing everybody's taxes. Oh, well, I can watch a few minutes more. Exactly. It's now two hours later and you've watched the entire thing. One of the things I noticed in rewatching it again is how if you're for the first time watching the film, you can start almost any place in the film and you don't have to have context of what's already happened. You can pick it up at that moment and continue to watch it and it makes sense. Totally. I, I can't I can't think of another film that is like that. Yeah, I would have to think hard about that, but I, I completely agree with you. The movie's broken down into basically three chapters, and you can come in at any chapter and really get the sense of what's happening. You have an innocent man who's in prison, what's going to happen next? That's all you need. And that's really part of the magic of this and why, like we're saying, You can come in at any point in time while flipping through a channel on cable, just start watching. And even if you've never seen it before, probably get hooked and probably continue watching. And it's like, oh, oh, wait, it starts in five more minutes. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. And I don't know if I I have a great another film to point to. I think there are a lot of films that are rewatchable that you could easily point to. I mean, there are a lot of them from the 90s and 80s. Back to the Futures one, Jurassic Park, ones that we've covered. But I think ha- some of those have a lot more to do with people have seen them so often that you can pick them up. One that appeals to me in the way you described it, though, would probably be like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It doesn't really matter where you pick up in that movie. Indy's always chasing the Ark. And you could probably not have a problem with 
where they're going or knowing where it is in the story and be able to pick it up because it most uh, resembles just an action vignette. But I, I don't know of too many other examples uh, past that. As far as cable movies go, though, I, I think one of the angles that we really have to present with this movie is it did so poorly on the front end from a box office standpoint. But most of its life, and we've talked about cult movies or cult followings, but this is kind of even more unique to that. And I'll, I'll get to some of that here in a second when we do the do you know and some of the background of this movie. It just it got a second life through rentals and on cable in a way that I don't think there's any other movie that has that unique a story. It, it has a resonance. And, and when we're going to get to that point of what's this movie about, I thought about it and I thought, you know, oh, it's, it's, the, it's Morgan Freeman's Overlight, 500 yards of foul-smelling uh, sewage and emerging clean. Okay, that's the summary more or less, what the movie is about. But no, I thought about this later on today. It is uh, Henry David Thoreau, the mass of men leaving or living quiet lives of desperation. This, for Andy and Red, is their prison. But I think what resonates, and it resonates a lot with men, is that they feel, whether it's their job, whether it's their monotony of their lives, they have this feeling of living in this life that is not necessarily what they had envisioned or hoped for, but they have it and they have to deal with it. And so I think to some extent, that's what the connection is a lot with men and, and watching this on cable. I was trying to, I was trying to quickly look up and I found an article while you were explaining this. You mentioned something interesting from a guy's perspective. And, and I was just curious, do we consider this, in this particular article, they consider it a dude flick, right? So we all know kind of, you know, there's different genres of movies and different demographics that like different movies. Would we consider this primarily a dude movie? No, I, I think the relatability is universal. That's the one thing that I would push back against because this somehow is relatable to all types of people. It's one of the few that, what was the description that you had once of like Budweiser, Dad, that they didn't pick the top ranking choice when they picked Budweiser in the sampler. They picked the third best because it was the one that appeared on most people's like top five. This is one that may not be everybody's favorite movie, but probably appears in most people's top like 15 movies because it has such a universality. And it cuts across age groups. This can be enjoyed literally by people as old as like 10 to anybody up to like 90. And they can find something human and universal in all of it somehow, which I don't know. There are not many movies that are capable of doing that. But it's why this thing has gotten such a additional life well past the movie's original release. Uh, I can bring an analogy to this because when I'm watching the film on Sunday night, my mother-in-law, who has only seen snippets of it because my father-in-law will watch it and she's kind of doing other stuff and kind of hears, she said, well, maybe I should just watch it. And so she sat down and watched it with me and she loved the film. But what she came out of it with was much different and much different 
as far as relational than what I have with the film. And I think that's the aspect of this. When you say it's a, a guy's film or a dude's film, I think it's a dude's film to the extent that it has a certain meaning to guys differently than it does to women. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I'll answer the question in the other way that it could be. And I'll say it from this standpoint. The cast is an all-male cast. And not many movies that have this universality have an all-male cast like this. So from that perspective, you could say, theoretically, it is a dude's film. But I do think that there are people that relate to it more generally because they look at themselves through the criminal justice system and being innocent. If I were wrongly accused, if I were imprisoned, it doesn't matter that it's an all-male perspective. And even from that standpoint, I know we criticize sometimes the classicness of things based on who was in the movie or whether there was a diversity quotient or some of the things that we now consider woke, but at least we try and incorporate. They did not in the novel have this be a black character that Morgan Freeman plays. It's why they have the line, well, I think it's because I'm Irish, because actually in the novella, he is an Irish character with red hair. That's why he's red. But to be able to take a chance on that and make the red character just Morgan Freeman who I'll kind of spite myself a little bit here, but was my best performance, I think gave credence to the rest of the movie. And there are a whole cast of different characters because it's not even that you have just the plain old white guy. Yeah, Andy's the straight-laced guy, but you have, you know, your hard-nosed guy, you have the greaser guy, you have your kind of like uh, schlock Italian fitting guy, you have the sisters... You have the pious warden, you have the hard-nosed sergeant, you have all the other guards who are a little more easygoing. I mean, you've got a lot of different characters in this. And while Morgan Freeman is pretty much the only real like on-screen diversity, I still think you can represent enough different characters through the course of this movie, even if it is an all-male cast. Shall we get into the nitty-gritty and the background on all of this? Sure. Dad, do you have your plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. In 1947 in Portland, Maine, banker Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins, is convicted of murdering his wife and her lover and is sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at the Shawshank State Prison. He is befriended by Ellis Red Redding, Morgan Freeman, an inmate in prison contraband smuggler serving a life sentence. Andy's sentence is more than a life imprisonment as he has to deal with Warden Samuel Norton, Bob Gunton, and a pious and cruel man, Byron Hadley, played by Clancy Brown, a brutal and sadistic guard, and the other inmates. Andy attempts to adjust but faces repeated sexual assaults from the sisters, as well as abuse from the guards. Using his skills as a banker, he eventually ends up with responsibilities beyond that of a prisoner and Andy and Red are eventually forced to face the difficulty of their situation and the fear of becoming institutionalized, a condition rendering them unable to survive outside the prison walls. Ultimately, will Andy and Red achieve redemption from their situation? Outstanding. Cast for this movie, Tim Robbins as Andy Dufresne, Morgan Freeman as Alice Boyd Red Redding, Bob Gunton as Samuel Norton, William Sadler as Haywood, Clancy Brown as Byron Hadley, Gil Bellows as Tommy Williams, 
James Whitmore as Brooks Hatlin, Mark Ralston as Boggs Diamond, Jeffrey DeMunn as the prosecuting attorney in Andy Dufresne's trial. Recognition for this movie, the film was nominated for Best Picture Actor, Morgan Freeman, Adapted Screenplay, Frank Darabont, Cinematography, Roger Deakins, Film Editing, Sound, and Score for Thomas Newman. Despite its disappointing box office returns, in what was then considered a risky move, Warner Home Video shipped out 320,000 rental video copies throughout the United States in 1995. It went on to become one of the top rented films of the year, and was seventh in the top video rental of 1995 in the United States. Ted Turner's broadcasting system, Turner Broadcasting, had acquired Castle Rock in 1993, which enabled his television channel, TNT, to obtain the cable broadcast rights to the film. According to Glotzer, because of the low box office numbers, TNT could air the film at a very low cost, but still charge premium advertising rates. The film began airing regularly on the network in June 1997. Television airings of the film accrued record-breaking numbers, and its repeated broadcast was considered essential to turning the film into a cultural phenomenon after its poor box office performance. In 1996, the rights to the Shawshank Redemption were acquired by Warner Brothers Pictures following the merger of its parent company, Time Warner, with the Turner Broadcasting System. By 2013, the Shawshank Redemption had aired on 15 basic cable networks, and in that year occupied 151 hours of airtime rivaling Scarface from 1983 and behind only Mrs. Doubtfire from 1993. It was in the top 15% of movies among adults between the ages of 18 and 49 on the Spike Up, Sundance TV, and Lifetime channels. Despite its mainly male cast, it was the most watched movie on the female-targeted OWN network. In the 2014 Wall Street Journal article based on the margin studios take from box office returns, home media sales, and television licensing, the Shawshank Redemption had made an estimated $100 million. Jeff Baker, then executive vice president and general manager of Warner Brothers Home Entertainment, said that the home video sales had earned about $80 million. While finances for licensing the film for television are unknown, in 2014, current and former Warner Brothers executives confirmed that it was one of the highest valued assets in the studio's billion library. That same year, Bob Gunton said that by its 10th anniversary in 2004, he was still earning six-figure residual payments and was still earning a substantial income from it, which was considered unusual so many years after its release. The film has been nominated for or appeared on the American Film Institute's lists celebrating the top 100 or film-related topics. In 1998, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list, and was number 72 on the 2007 revised list, outranking both Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, films that ended up also being nominated for Best Picture in 1994. Forrest Gump obviously winning. It was also number 23 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Cheers 2006 list, charting inspiring films. The characters of Andy and Warden Norton received nominations for AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains list, on the AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes list for Get Busy Living or Get Busy Dying, AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs list for Solaria Che Soave Zeferretto. I probably butchered that because I'm not Italian, but that from The Marriage of Figaro, which takes place over the radio in the middle of the movie. And AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores for Thomas Newman's work on this film. In 2005, the Writers Guild of America listed Darabont's screenplay at number 22 on its list of 101 greatest screenplays, and in 2006, Film 4 listed at number 13 on its list of 50 films to see before you die. 
In 2014, The Shawshank Redemption was named Hollywood's fourth favorite film based on a survey of 2,120 Hollywood-based entertainment industry members. Entertainment lawyers skewed the most towards the film. In 2017, The Daily Telegraph named it the 17th best prison film ever made, and USA Today listed it as one of the 50 best films of all time. In 2019, Games Radar Plus listed its ending as one of the best of all time. It has been the number one film on IMDb's user-generated top 250 since 2008, when it surpassed The Godfather, having remained at or near the top since the late 90s. In the United Kingdom, readers of Empire voted the film as the best of the 1990s, the greatest film of all time in 2006, and it placed number four on Empire's 2008 list of 500 greatest movies of all time, and their 2017 list of the 100 greatest movies. In March 2011, the film was voted by BBC Radio 1 and BBC Radio 1 Extra listeners as their favorite film of all time. It regularly appears on Empire's Top 100 Films, was named the greatest film to not win the Academy Award for Best Picture in a 2013 poll by Sky UK, it lost to Forrest Gump, and ranked as Britain's favorite film in a 2015 YouGov poll. When the British Film Institute analyzed the demographic breakdown of the YouGov poll, it noted that The Shawshank Redemption was not the top-ranked film in any group, but was the only film to appear in the top 15 of every age group, suggesting it is able to connect with every polled age group, unlike Pulp Fiction, which fared better with younger voters, and Gone with the Wind for older voters. In 2015, the film was selected by the United States Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry. Did you know? Frank Darabont initially looked at some of his favorite actors, such as Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall, for the role of Andy Dufresne, but they were unavailable. Clint Eastwood and Paul Newman were also considered. Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, and Kevin Costner were offered and passed on the role. Hanks due to his starring role in Forrest Gump, and Costner because he had the lead in Waterworld. That was a great decision. Johnny Depp, (laughs) Nicolas Cage, and Charlie Sheen were also considered for the role at different stages, and Cruise even attended table readings of the script but declined work for the inexperienced Darabont. Darabont said he cast Robbins after seeing his performance in the 1990 psychological horror Jacob's Ladder. Did you know? Cast initially as young convict Tommy, Brad Pitt dropped out following his success in Thelma and Louise. The role went to a debuting Gil Bellows instead. Did you know? James Gandolfini passed on portraying prison rapist Boggs. Did you know? Bob Gunton was filming Demolition Man from 1993 when he went to audition for the role of Warden Norton. To convince the studio that Gunton was right for the part, Darabont and producer Nicky Marvin arranged for him to record a screen test on a day off from Demolition Man. They had a wig made for him as his head was shaved for his Demolition Man role. Gunton wanted to portray Norton with hair as this could then be grayed to convey his on-screen aging as the film progressed. Gunton performed his screen test with Robbins, which was filmed by Deakins. After being confirmed for the role, he used the wig in the film's early scenes until his hair regrew. Gunton said that Marvin and Darabont saw that he understood the character, which went in his favor, as did the fact his height was similar to Robbins's, allowing Andy, be- Andy to believably use the warden's suit. Did you know? The novella's original title attracted several people to audition for the non-existent role of Rita Hayworth, including a man in drag. Did you know? When Robbins was cast, he insisted that Darabont use experienced cinematographer Roger Deakins, who had worked with him on the Hudsucker Proxy. Did you know? To prepare for the role, Robbins observed caged animals at a zoo, spent an afternoon in solitary confinement, spoke with prisoners and guards, and had his arms and legs shackled for a few hours. Did you know? 
The oak tree under which Andy leaves a note for Red directing him to Ziwadaneho becomes a symbol of hope for its role in the film and is considered iconic. In 2016, the New York Times reported that the tree attracted thousands of visitors annually, and the tree was partially destroyed on July 29, 2011, when it was split by lightning. News of the damage was reported across the United States on newscasts, in newspapers, and on websites as far away as India. The tree was completely felled by strong winds on or around July 22, 2016, and its vestiges were cut down in April 2017. The remains were turned into the Shawshank Redemption memorabilia, including rock hammers and magnets. Did you know? The prison site, which was planned to be fully torn down after filming, became a tourist attraction. The Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society, a group of enthusiasts of the film, purchased the building and site from Ohio for $1 in 2000 and took up maintaining it as a historical landmark, both as its purpose as a prison and as the filming site. A 2019 report estimated the attraction to be earning $16 million in annual revenue. Many of the rooms and props remain there, including the false pipe through which Andy escapes and a portion of the oak tree from the finale, after it was damaged in 2011. The surrounding area is also visited by fans, while local businesses market Shaw Shandwiches and Bunt Cakes in the Shape of the Prison. According to the Mansfield-Richland County Convention and Visitors Bureau, later renamed Destination Mansfield, tourism in the area had increased every year since the Shawshank Redemption premiered, and in 2013 drew in 18,000 visitors and over 3 million to the local economy. As of 2019, Destination Mansfield operates the Shawshank Trail, a series of 15 marked stops around locations related to the film across Mansfield, Ashland, Upper Sandusky, and St. Croix. The trail earned $16.9 million in revenue in 2018. Did you know? The significant and enduring public appreciation for the film has often been difficult for critics to define. In an interview, Freeman said, quote, about everywhere you go, people say, The Shawshank Redemption, greatest movie I ever saw, and that such praise just coming out of them. Robbins said, quote, I swear to God, all over the world, all over the world, wherever I go, there are people who say that movie changed my life. In a separate interview, Stephen King said, quote, if that isn't the best adaptation of my works, it's one of the two or three best, and certainly in moviegoers' minds, it's probably the best because it generally rates at the top of these surveys they have of movies. I never expected anything to happen with it. Did you know? In a 2014 Variety article, Robbins claimed that South African political prisoner Nelson Mandela told him about his love for the film. Gutton had said he had encountered fans in Morocco, Australia, South America, Germany, France, and Bora Bora. Director Steven Spielberg said that the film was, quote, a chewing gum movie. If you step on it, it sticks to your shoe. So, gentlemen, what is this movie about? Or how would you elevator pitch it? Let's start with you, Dad. You, you really wanted to go. Well, I kind of already did, but I had 500 yards of foul sewage and emerging clean on the other side. And I, I commented again, this is, uh, this relates, this is set in a prison, but it's the mass of men living quiet lives of desperation. Chris, what did you have done? For me, and I'll use words from the movie, it's a movie about hope and redemption, justice, and it's really a story of friendship and perseverance. I mean, you can summarize it as man goes into a prison, finds a friend, and finds justice. Yeah, I also use 
some stuff from the movie because this is an easily very quotable movie. Get busy living or get busy dying. The audacity of hope versus circumstance. I, I think that all of those encompass it, but we all come from that is what's somehow special about this movie. I just don't know if there are too many others that can relate in this same manner. I think one of the other interesting things when we think about this movie is to try to define it and what genre it is. And, and hear me out for just a second. You mentioned at the start that it's a prison movie. And we can put it in line with Alcatraz and other prison movies. That's fine. But if you were to simplify this and say, is it a drama? Is it a thriller? There's elements of this movie that I thought were funny. So there's comedy elements that are brought into this. There's buddy-buddy aspects to this. And I think really, when we talk about the appeal across all of these demographics and age ranges and being able to flip through the channel and just sit on it, it's because it has a little bit of everything. So we talk about hope and perseverance and justice and buddy-buddy and friendship with a dash of comedy, with a dash of thrill, with a dash of drama. You just don't know what you're really getting. And I think that is really part of the appeal of the entire film. I would definitely agree because I can't think of one thing to put my finger on that would say it's that. I think it, it just has a general appeal, even though you could theoretically just put it in the prison film category because of the circumstances or the setting of where it takes place. So let's go to best performance then. I already revealed mine as Morgan Freeman. I think he sets the tone, and that's why I think even if the opening wasn't seen by people, if you pick this up right when they arrive at the prison to start with, when his narration begins is when the movie really starts to pick up. And I think he really does establish what the heart of the film is because he's always providing a little bit of extra omnipotence to whatever the action is revolving. He's showing you the darker parts, but without necessarily having to show it on screen. It's one of the few times that I've actually thought narration enhanced a film as opposed to where most people actually think it detracts. This is one where you didn't always have to see it on screen because we didn't want to see all the worst parts of prison because that would ruin the heartwarming nature of the film, especially when you get to the end of it. But you had to at least get up to the edge and then red could take you a little bit further. And then on top of it, showing a love and a care that hardened people are somewhat human, especially because you know Andy's innocent and he's going to prove to have heart and hope in a way that the rest of the convicts are not supposed to have. Even though they all claim they're innocent, ha ha ha, they're not. And I know that some of the criticisms were, well, we turned these guys who are all convicted of probably some heinous things into good guys during the course of this movie. But I think Red does get it, and that's why we have that ending speech from him. I do regret, not because I'm in here, but because I can't go back and talk to that kid who made a lot of mistakes in his younger years. He's the guy that's willing to say, I am guilty of what I did. And I'm reformed to the point of, okay, I have heart, I show emotion, I care about the guys that are in here, but this is now my entire world is within these four walls. And so by his example, I think there's a reason he was nominated for Best Actor as opposed to Supporting Actor for this one. I'm kind of surprised that Robbins wasn't nominated, but this was a tough movie year going back to that 
uh, Oscar race. I, I just think that Morgan Freeman has his fingerprints all over this, and I would argue it's probably his best film. So here's another did you know. You talk about Morgan Freeman's voiceover in this in narration in this movie. This was actually the first time he narrated a movie. And from there, he became this most sought after narration voice up there with, you know, the James Earl Joneses. You know, there's a lot of social media commentary out there like, who would you like to narrate your life history, you know, in, in a video? And it's either James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman. It all started with this film. And that just shows you also how this acting that he did transformed his entire career also. So I would agree. I think his acting is phenomenal. He sets the pace of the entire movie. He gives credibility. He gives insight. He gives feeling to the, to the character. You can also see his own character evolve and grow. You know, I think that's one of the things that we should look for when we think about how a character evolves throughout the story. And there's definitely a clear starting point and ending point in that progression for his character. As you mentioned, even from sitting down at the beginning of the film for the parole and saying exactly what he thinks they want to hear to the end where he says, screw it, I'm just going to say what's on my mind. And that progression, that evolution of his character also is uh, really the heartbeat, I think, of this film. Because I think that it's hard to see the fingerprints of the change in Andy. I think he's supposed to be the constant. It's what Andy's presence does to Red that I think helps, quote unquote, reform him by the end. But to your comment, who I'd like to narrate my life, probably Tom Hanks. I might go with either Brad Pitt or Matt Damon, too, because I just like them. Dad, I have to uh, assume that you'd like Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> yeah, sure. So who is your best performance, Dad? Uh, Morgan Freeman. Um, the only thing, I, I love Tim Robbins, and I'll and since usually the last person does the first and the secondary, and he was my best secondary performance. But can you imagine Tom Hanks in this role? Uh, because... It was Morgan Freeman and Tom Hanks at their absolute prime because I think to some extent I regret not having seen those two work together and see what the chemistry would have been. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to envision Tom Hanks in this movie because Robbins is so personifies the character. It's hard to see anybody else. Freeman had really reached a point where his career was uh, was in auto drive. I mean, he was just phenomenal. Chris, who did you have as your best performance? Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I think I c covered most of that. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we included it so that uh, all of us have had a chance. But all right, so that's universal. So then let's go to best secondary. I'll give you the first up, Chris. Who did you have for best secondary performance? Robbins. Obviously, the story is his, and the performance that he provides, I think, you know, when we talk about other actors who might be able to play this role, I could see how Tom Hanks' interpretation of the role might be, 
I could see how, you know, any of the other actors that were asked to do this, same thing, what their interpretation of this role might be. But really, it's Tim Robbins' nature that makes this role. That soft, carefree, almost attitude, the air of mystery, the just walking through the yard as if he's in his own world. That element, I think, is what really makes this. Because on one hand, you can see that he's just accepted his fate. But on the other hand, you're wondering, he doesn't seem right. Like, what is he thinking? And that what is he thinking ultimately pays out. And you can start to see that towards the end where he starts to shift from a very casual to a very, is he about to break? And I remember watching this and thinking at the end, like, what is he going to do? Like, he's having a mental breakdown. I think that shift in nature can only be portrayed by Tim Robbins. And anybody else who would try to play this, I don't think would have been able to pull it off. There's certainly a reserved nature that I don't see in like Tom Cruise playing this would be just way over the top. I cannot envision him in this movie. Tom Hanks is probably the closest, but Tom Hanks is almost a little too soft for me. The way Robbins plays it is with a certain level of perseverance that I don't think too many other actors could have done and be convincing because there's a perseverance that by the end of it, you have to believe this guy spent 19 years building a tunnel and a way out of prison and then would crawl through shit to do it. So you got to have somebody that has like a certain strength within them, but it has to be quiet. And all while then also presenting the intellectual front in order to play that part of the character that's central to the second half of the movie. I, I It's so many different pieces in one that he has to make it his own. And I, I tend to agree with all of that. Dad, you also nominated Robbins as your best secondary. Yeah, he just had a quality that the, the nature of the reserve element of the character that Robbins was able to portray. Uh, we did uh, already uh, Bull Durham and... It's kind of, he kind of portrays the same, there's a certain level of innocence, but yet sophistication, reserve, without being aloof, that he portrays in most of the films he's been in. Yeah, the same year there is Hudsucker Proxy, right? Which he portrayed as kind of a naive, you know, innocent-minded individual that still was able to navigate these rough, you know, business world. And he brought some of that same element to this. So like you said, there's definitely an innocence to it, yet you can tell he's intelligent and that he has something else going on. And I, uh, like I said earlier, I, I just don't think you would have gotten that with uh, any other actor in that. Understandable. I'm going to be the odd man out on this conversation. I actually went with Frank Darabont. And as the director, it's harder for me to notice great direction sometimes other than the completion of the movie where I can sit back and view the whole thing as a collective just because they have their hands on each piece. But I can tell the 
fingerprints sometimes of little touches. Like, you know a Wes Anderson movie. You know a Steven Spielberg movie. There are just little flares, kind of like in a guitar player. You kind of notice certain guys a little bit differently. But I, I really go for him as best secondary, primarily for the writing portion of this. We have seen how many Stephen King novels have been adapted and how many of them have been done well, let alone this well. I know he also adapted The Green Mile, which is another one that a lot of people like, but it's a movie that somehow has become something way bigger than the book or the novella ever was. And I, I have to give him credit because there are so many different little flares to characteristics or how they changed certain characters or did just little touches differently that adapted well to the screen and put together a great narrative overall. Yeah, and I'm going to add into that from a writing and directing perspective. I think if you asked a lot of people, you know, just did a survey out there, I bet you the majority of people responding to this particular question would be, I didn't know Stephen King wrote that. And that is credit, not only to Stephen King, but to the adaption, the adaptation, and the direction of this film because it becomes something greater than the original source. So I completely agree with you. Dad, let's start with you, uh, most charismatic. I add uh, Morgan Freeman. I think this made Morgan Freeman into a megastar. I think it be made him into almost an iconic actor. I think if if you ask most Americans right now to name the, their five top actors or actresses, Morgan Freeman would be on 90% of those lists. That's quite a statement. I'm not sure, but if you're asked to name a Morgan Freeman movie, I think this doesn't make it past three. Yeah. Well, I, I think if you really had people who watched films and did it on a regular basis, and I'm not talking about people who are doing yeah, we're not normal about film, but if you just asked who their favorite actors or actresses were, name five of your favorite. And remember years ago when I used to say, who's the coolest man in the world? And everybody would give an answer. And then I'd go, no, 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 it's Sir Sean Connery. And then they'd go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I, I, I agree. If you did that to most people, if they don't name Freeman in their top five, and you go, what about Morgan Freeman? Oh, All right. yeah, we can, yeah. We can do that social experiment the next time we're around. Uh, I'd be curious at that one. But as for his charisma in this, though. Well, I just think he 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 had a presence in the film that was so huge. I mean, there's a reason why he was nominated as Best Actor. Because he just, every scene he's in, he just filled the screen. You were drawn to watch him. You were drawn to what he was thinking. And you, he has a knack for being able to portray his emotions on his face almost better than any actor I know or have ever experienced. He just has a certain way of, you can, you know, and it's so subtle sometimes, but you can just read the emotion on his eyes or the way he holds his eyes. I, that can't be taught. And, and that to me says there's an element of charisma there that, cannot be recreated by most people. Chris, did you also have Morgan? I did, and I will agree with everything you just said. 
and add one other moment to confirm what you just said. And that's at the end of the film where he is going to the big oak tree and he's sitting at the wall and he's opening the tin can and he finds some money and he hears some crickets and birds in the background and he gets up and he's looking around and he's like, is somebody there, right? As if he was still in prison. Like that instinctual facial expressions in that moment brought you back to, oh, he's still kind of scared for his life per se. And like, why is he doing this? That all comes out and that's Morgan Freeman. That's his acting style. That's his capability of doing that. And definitely want to agree with you on all of those points. Again, I am the odd man out. I went with somebody else. I went with Bob Gunton. I don't know if there is a better villain that isn't just like over the top. He's ruthless without necessarily being overly aggressive, although he uses some aggressive tactics, obviously in the situation of Tommy, obviously in the situation of being down in the hole or um, his threats when uh, Tim Robbins wants to pull away from doing all of the criminal activity, his smarminess when he's doing the bribery and the corruption and all the other BS that goes on. And yet still, there are two things we teach in Shawshank, the Bible and and discipline. And you'll get plenty of both here. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I, I don't have the line in front of me. But his pious attitude representing something that we see a lot of other people. Uh, I'll get to it in a little bit later, but I think that he is one of the great villains of, fin- of cinema history that doesn't get enough recognition. And I think anytime he's on screen, he inhabits a larger than the movie persona almost. All right, so then let's get to best scene. My nominees, and I there are a lot of just great scenes, so I think uh, if I count it here, I have 12. And I probably missed some. But uh, the first one I put down was Fresh Fish. I, I think the way that, again, I kind of just can skip over the trial. You, you understand why Andy's in prison. You kind of understand the circumstances. But they spend maybe a couple of minutes too long in order to do that. I don't know. Whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. The movie really picks up when it's the first night in prison. And the fact that they spent, what, 15, 20 minutes going through that the fat ass, quote unquote, is beat to death and all of the stuff that goes on, you know, a man breaks down on the first night. It happens every time and they're taking bets on it. And you're seeing the dehumanization processing going through. I love the way that they introduce the world through that rhythm of the movie. It really immerses you in everything that's going on. Two, I had, I need a rock hammer because it's such an, an, Accuous tool that you would have, and yet obviously comes back around in multiple ways as, as we go along. Meeting the sisters, uh, that I'm sure we can get into. Can you get me Rita Hayworth? Uh, again, this is where we kind of set up the bigger plot of him needing that. And if I, I'd love to have watched this for the first time because I don't remember the first time watching this, I've probably seen it in so many different clips because it was on cable that it's hard for me to have the same reaction that I'm sure everybody else did the first time they saw it with the ending and the reveal and the shocking nature of it and what Rita Hayworth really came to represent as opposed to what we assumed it would have meant the first time. 
you know, can you sneak me Rita Hayworth in here? And of course, it just means the poster. But uh, Brooks's release, I think it's one of the toughest movie points in the movie to actually watch. That and Tommy's death. It, but it sets up so much later in the film as to the institutionalized nature. And everybody refers back to it commonly. Tar- or tarring the roof, which sets up the beer. Again, the audacity of Andy, you have to introduce that part of it. But him almost getting thrown off the roof and that he's got a bigger purpose going on that eventually leads him into the other stuff that takes off the second half of the movie. But he ingratiates himself among his fellow prisoners. Andy does the guards' taxes. It's just a fun montage scene. I I don't know. I'm drawn to montages occasionally. Opera, because I couldn't think of a better way to describe the, the musical number. That one isn't as significant to me, but I know that it's representative to other people. Randall Stevens. I created somebody. You can't just create anybody, Andy. Well, apparently you can, at least in the 1950s and 60s. And honestly, you might be able to still do it. Uh, Tommy exonerates Andy, and I'll just make that one larger piece. So when Tommy tells the story, then uh, Andy is sent into the hole, the obtuse, you know, all of that stuff. I'll put that as one piece, but obviously a big part because that sets off the final plot action of the final piece of the film. Andy escapes, which I think everybody knows, so I don't need to go into too much detail. And then Buxton, so going to the tree and then traveling to Zihuataneo. So anything I missed or any that you'd like to highlight, either of you? I'll add having beer up on the, having beer up on the roof. Also, there are several scenes where the gang, we'll call them, Andy's friends, are reminiscing about Andy or building upon the lore or personality of Andy, right? And so there's several teams where they're at lunch or they're in the yard and they're like, you know, Andy did this and Andy did that. And no, they he did not, you know. I think all of that just builds up the persona of Andy throughout the film. And, and I always found those elements really interesting. Okay. Dad, did you have any others? From a personal note, for the audience who listens regularly, and I don't know, Chris, if you know what my actual occupation is, I, I'm a lawyer. And for the first 17 years of my career, I did criminal defense. The scene with Brooks has certain resonance with me. When I was a young lawyer, I had a client who was assigned to me by the courts, and uh, he had been in prison 25 years for a horrendous uh, sexual assault with violence. He was released on parole from Waupon State Prison, which is one of our three maximum security prisons, took a bus down to where we were living, Beloit, Wisconsin, went into the office for the bus company, pulled out a knife, locked the door, and then stood there and threatened the female employee and said, call the police and tell them that I'm threatening to kill you. And so she did, and the police arrived, and he walked out, dropped the knife, and put his hands out because after 25 years of prison, he didn't believe he could function on the outside without harming somebody, and he didn't want to do that again. And so he, uh, we ended up in court, and uh, the judge gave him another 25 years, which would have put him in his 70s when he was released. And um, so I understand very well 
the situation that was going on. And that would have been about a year, year and a half before the film was released and I saw it for the first time. Always an emotional climax for me at that first part of the film. Yeah, and definitely when Morgan Freeman's character gets released and Red goes to the exact same room, et cetera, and goes through that same mental, has the same job, asks to go use the restroom and is told, you don't have to ask me constantly to go use the restroom, just go, right? That all brings that additional feelings for the characters and for the realities that they're in and the decision-making that he has to go through for what's next. You know, does he break his parole? Does he just give up, you know? And so I, I think that just adds to the whole drama of this moment in the film, for sure. All right, so then... I guess that puts us at favorite scene. It was hard for me to pick a favorite. I'll I'll put favorite and indelible moment for me as the escape. I think it's where the movie is the best or at its absolute peak. It's, it's throwing 102 because from the moment that Andy's not there and I, I have to assume that somebody seeing this for the first time really thinks there's a possibility that he committed suicide. But the fact that there's literally nothing there and they don't show it on screen right away. And then it's slowly building into that whole thing and he throws the rock through the poster, then puts his whole fist through and then he just peers down the hole. And then you get that escape to freedom during the rainstorm and breaking the pipe, crawling through the sewage. And then that final moment that's on all of the posters, him standing in the rain, basically free again. I think it's the best part of this movie. I think you could incredibly make an argument for any part of it, but it's the part to me that always works the best. So favorite scene for you, Chris? There are two movies in my entire life that I've watched and literally cheered. The first one was Digstown, and that has a surprise ending. And for any of you who have not seen Digstown, I would highly recommend it. It's definitely a sleeper and definitely one to binge watch at some point in time. And then this one, similar types of things, like you don't see it coming, all of a sudden it happens. And what I was talking about at the beginning of our show was that unique feeling of, oh my gosh, I just left and watched something incredible. That was this. And so definitely have to put it at the end, the whole ending, just cheering and, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And, oh wow. And, just a sense of satisfaction in the whole thing, you know, all the way up to the end where the reveal and the press getting all of the documents and the corruption that's exposed. Like there is such a feeling of satisfaction at that last moment. You just can't help but just smile and be like, ah, this was, this was a great payoff. Absolutely. By the way, no familiarity at all with Digstown, but since you did mention it, I will say that at least right now, it may not be by the time somebody listens to this a couple of months from now or whenever, but it is available for free on Pluto TV. So there you go. I digress. Dad, for you, favorite scene? The uh, rooftop and the beer. I have been in that situation so many times where you're sitting there and you go, do I put myself at risk because and change the direction or the course of my life by putting myself in that position 
or not. And so many times I've done just that. And usually it's always paid off. And so I really connected with that scene. You can just see he he kind of turns and he's going to say something. Then he kind of backs off. Then he kind of goes forward again. Then he kind of comes back. And then he finally is going to, he's made up his mind. He's going to do it. And they're all going, no, don't do it. Oh, are you crazy? Get back here. To me, that's, that is uh, my favorite scene. And if you want my most indelible, it is the ending because it is the ultimate redemption. I think all of us have the redemption as being indelible, correct? Yeah, it, it is the most notable thing. And it's why it's on the posters and on the box covers and everything else. It's the moment everybody connects with because it has everything leading up dramatically, watching him crawl through it, all the struggle that he did to try and get out of it and built behind, well, what happened to Andy? And that's the leading thing. The only other thing I could say as far as a favorite scene, if I have to nominate something else, is him walking into the bank and just taking all of the money and then slowly realizing that he's gotten away with all of this stuff that he was just smarter than everybody else. Cause I love when the guy who's constantly underestimated gets the upper hand. Maybe that's telling of me and my personality and the things that have happened to me in my life, but that's always a, a favorite in movies for me. Let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, dad, is there anybody we have to remember this week? Uh, first off, you brought to my attention the fact that we had missed Norm MacDonald, which was a few weeks ago, and unfortunately, comedian and actor, dirty work, Billy Madison, Madison, excuse me, Billy Madison, grown-ups, and he obviously was on SNL for a number of years, passed away of cancer. Cancer also got uh, a guy that I had a real strong attachment to, Peter Scolari, when I was uh, in high school, I used to watch this show that no one else had seen or was watching, apparently. And I kept raving about this show and these two guys, Peter Scolari and Tom Hanks, bosom buddies. I thought, these two are great, and they have such a great chemistry. This is such a great show. And uh, they tried to make it go, and it didn't, and it failed. But uh, obviously, they have they went on to have a significant career, but... Scolari, who uh, didn't have quite the career that Hanks did because of some problems with drugs and drug addiction, nevertheless had a very successful career on TV and a few movies, was most notable on the Bob or on the on Newhart, which was the second Bob Newhart show, and uh, won an Emmy, I guess, for being on Girls. Yeah, I did see that in your notes from before which I was a little bit surprised by. I wasn't familiar with him being in that. And he's also listed as being in That Thing You Do, which is the Tom Hanks written movie and produced, uh, the first one he did with Playtone, that I couldn't remember him being in the movie, and apparently he's in it, so I'm going to have to watch it again. That's an underrated film that I wish more people would have seen. There's a scene in that movie that was about, like they did the band st American Bandstand-type show. He's the host. He played. Yeah, the, I, I looked the, it up to try and see where he was. I, I just have to watch it again because I just don't remember him being in that movie. Even though I introduced it to Sarah last year and she loved it too. It's, it's a very easy film to love for whatever reason. 
And then lastly, I guess this happened uh, today? Uh, yesterday, I thought. Okay, because I didn't see it when I was doing my research. Mort Saul, 94, comedian and actor, all the young men, Johnny Cool and Love and War, passed away. One of my associates asked me, because I mentioned, oh, Mort Saul, oh, who's that? And I said, well, that was Bill Maher before Bill Maher. Well, and I think the biggest thing that was in a lot of the obituaries I saw had to do with he was such an influence on other comedians. Everywhere from Lenny Bruce all the way up through, I want to say, there were there were a couple of like recent comedians that drew some effects from him or that he was like this kind of godfather of comedy. So I, I can't think of the names offhand. But well, just I can name two. A... First of all, George Carlin wouldn't have been George Carlin without Mar- Mort Saul. Because Mort Saul went kind of the counterculture, and George Carlin felt that he could do that then, and did so. And then one who's no longer considered uh, someone you mention in polite company, one uh, Louis C.K. I see. Yeah, that that, uh, unfortunately has some additive properties that uh, we'd rather not get into, but... This is a moment to remember them all for their work kindly and for the things they gave to us in entertainment and their contributions live on. Uh, Unfortunately, they're no longer with us. We take a moment of silence here in their honor. All right, thank you. Gentlemen, if you're ready, we'll go to Best Funniest Lines. Again, I don't know if this is as much about comedy. There are moments of levity in this one, but I think there are too many good motivational poster quotes out of this movie to focus on the funny so much. So, Chris, why don't you kick us off? Well, I'll tell you what the best line is, and it's one that you won't understand the first time you watch the film and becomes increasingly more familiar and obvious and impactful the more you watch it. And the line is, salvation lies within. (laughs) Now, this is at the moment where there's a raid on the cells and the warden comes in and they have an exchange about different scriptures in the Bible. And they're passing the Bible back and forth and the warden leaves, closes the cell, says, salvation lies within and hands the Bible back through the cell back to Andy. It's a throwaway line. You don't understand it at all, but what you ultimately find out is the payoff at the end of the film when you open up the Bible, the warden opens up the Bible, and discovers that that's where he hid the pick, the rock hammer that he used to escape. That salvation lies within, literally and figuratively inside of the Bible. Absolutely amazing when you think about the timing and the buildup and the setup for that line specifically, and then even the payoff at the end for that line. Well, especially because it's part of the inscription that Andy writes to the warden. Yep. I just wonder, and it's never really discussed, I think it's implied but whether or not the rock hammer was within the Bible at that time already and whether the warden, when he's, Oh, what's your favorite passage of scripture? And I wondered fully within that. And I still wonder every time, is he going to open it and try and look for his own favorite passage and whether he'll find the rock hammer? 
Well, you know that he already has the hammer. And you know that it was set up even earlier. If they find it, there's raids. If they find it, you never know who you, who you got it from. Red sets it all up like, don't reveal anything. Don't tell anybody. And so they go. They break up the entire cell. They don't find any hammer. And that's the first thing I'm thinking. Oh, my gosh, they're going to find the rock hammer. It's nowhere to be found. And it's far enough away from Red telling him, don't be found with this, that I think you disconnect a little bit, you forget about it a little bit, and then all of a sudden the reveal at the end. The second or third time, fourth time you watch it, when you hear that line, you're like, oh my gosh, it's right there. Yeah, it is one that you can only appreciate fully on either the final uh, ending or in a rewatch. My first one up, I went with, I'd like to think the last thing that went through his head, other than that bullet, was to wonder how the hell Andy Dufresne ever got the best of him. Another great one. The demise of the warden. Dad, what's your first one up? That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. It's it's not just music. It's any art. It's anything you find of beauty. It's your emotion. It's your love for another human. It's so much. Music just is what they used in this particular case, but there are things that you can hold dear that they cannot take from you. And honestly, I've seen this repeated in a ton of other films trying to borrow that idea. I don't know if this is the first time it's used, but it's as far back as I can get before it's mentioned a lot more in other cultural references as far as being locked up or caged and maintaining that you can't take my mind. That's mine. Chris, did you have another one? All of the references to hope throughout the entire film, obviously I'm drawn towards. And back even when you're talking about that music, he's talking about hope too, right? It's something that's intangible. It's something that you can't take away from me. It's something worth living for. I mean, I I would love to go through, or maybe it's somewhere online to find out How many times the word hope was used in the entire film? Because it's a lot, but it's not used in vain, if that makes sense. It's used sparingly, but enough that you get the point that, you know, hope is definitely a clear message, whether that's in music, as you're talking about, or whether that's in finding some sort of internal driver or motivation to keep your sanity throughout the entire experience. Uh, So all of the references to hope is definitely something we should talk about. The next one that I had down then was in Andy's letter to Red. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Dad, what did you have down as your next one? They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take. Yeah, that's one I didn't have down, but that's a good one too. Chris, did you have another one? I think the funny line for me, and it has funny in it, is the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man. (laughs) You know, and there's definitely some play to that as you start to get to know Andy's character a little bit more. I had to come to prison to become a crook. Yeah. Absolutely. Then let's see here, because that was actually my next one. Uh, I'll do the obvious one. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. Dad, I think you're up. Brooks, the world went and got itself in a big damn hurry. 
I'm not sure if I understand exactly what he means by that. When he went in, there were, you know, he comments about how he only saw one car. And now everybody is trying to run him over. And that's the thing that I remember my grandfather was born in 1909. My grandfather told me was, is when he was a kid, it's just like every year, everything goes faster. It's not just time, but it seems like everybody is going faster. And when you get to his point, he wanted to just be done with life because everything was moving so fast he couldn't keep up anymore. That's an interesting thought. Chris, did you have another one yet? No, but I will say that I mentioned hope just a moment ago, and I was also trying to do a quick search. Hope was used three times in the last couple of sentences of the entire movie. Hope is the last word of the movie. And it's, I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it is in my head. I hope. And so, yeah, hope is definitely, again, that theme. Also a good line. Dad, uh, did you have another one? I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Do you want to finish that? Because I have the whole piece there. Um, I don't. I just had that piece. If you want to finish it, go ahead. Some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. But still, the place you live in is that much more drab and empty that they're gone. I guess I just miss my friend. I don't know. That line, for whatever reason, has always given me chills. I just miss my friend. The next one I had down was, in prison, a man will do most anything to keep his mind occupied. Dad, did you have any others yet? Whoever looks in a man's shoes. Ah, you beat me to it. Except the line is, I mean, whoever really looks at a man's shoes. All right, sorry. It's more of a question thing, but yeah, I knew that you were going to go for that one because you've been talking to me about that forever. Yeah, I know. Red, believe what you want. These walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. After long enough, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Uh, any other ones, Dad? No, not off the top. All right, so then I just had two other ones. Fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. Andy Dufresne. The other one I had was um, kind of near the end there, uh, and it's kind of along the same conversation as the music, but Andy... Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Red, forget? Forget that there are places in this world that aren't made out of stone. That there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch, that's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. All right, so let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy. Dad, it's probably best if we start this off just kind of let Chris see some of the example of what uh, we do with some of these. What did you have down for legacy? Well, we've been dividing it into the public versus the industry. And legacy for the industry, I had a four. Because I think a lot of critics really love the film and appreciate the film. And it's gotten more notoriety as time has gone by. But I still think there's a certain element of the critique or the critics and in the industry that wonders why they don't quite get why this film has such resonance. 
So I went with a four on that aspect. But for the general public, I went with a five. Because, you know, when I mentioned this and within the family and we're talking, uh, you know, was your grandfather said, oh, this is a great film. And your mother, oh, this was great. It was wonderful to have been there and seen it in the theaters. And, and uh, oh, yes, and your uncle, uh, John, this is his favorite film. He watches it at least once a month when he can find it on cable. And the public loves it. So it's a five. So I went with a nine. I think this resonates with the general public well more than even we understand. If we're talking about displaced countries as far south as South America or as remote as Bora Bora, being able to resonate with this movie, there are very few movies that translate that far and wide. I remember when we did the revisit for Back to the Future and there was a comment by Michael J. Fox that he was in some remote part of Nepal and got questions about being in that movie. That's one of these movies that it's just so universal and so connective on its face that the audience is always going to appreciate it more than any of the industry or critics are going to do. I think the industry, if they have an appreciation for it at this point, it's in the dollar signs more than it is in the love that the audience has for it. So I went the exact same score. I had a four for the industry. I had a five for the audience. So uh, I ended up at a nine as well. Chris, what did you have? It's interesting. I wrote a paper back in college way long ago, what makes a great movie? And it was based on the public perception, box office score, things like that versus critics. And we often see a disconnect where the critics might hate something and yet the public might love something. And the critics actually didn't like this movie when it first came out. The reviews was rather poor. And I think the legacy score on this has grown over the last, say, 10 years. So I would definitely put a five for consumers, basic individuals like us who are watching it. I would have probably put a three, say, you know, a couple years ago for this uh, from an industry perspective. I think it's definitely grown and I think it continues to grow, which I think dictates definitely what the longevity and legacy of this film is. So I think I would agree. I think it's about a nine. Okay. That makes the math easier. Dad, don't you do it. Uh, All right. (laughs) Impact significance. I'll start on this one. Uh, From what I can tell, I don't think that the reviews were necessarily positive. I don't think they were like atrociously negative in the same way that some of the film or the reviews that we had for last week's film, like psycho was way too far ahead of its time for a lot of people and was just grossly offensive to them. This is one that they have criticisms towards and that it it was kind of mixed, but at the same time it was nominated for a lot of stuff and that pretty much kind of saved the movie in a lot of circles. I think Darabont specifically credits the Oscars with being able to kind of raise the stature of the movie in a way that they would not have otherwise had. So I actually, for the, the industry at the time, I'll go with a four. Now this is a weird one. Despite its poor box office showing the whole point of impact significance is in the moment. And we usually cap it at five years. So we've often focused on primarily just the box office. But given the fact that a year after its release, it was the top seven in rentals that year, 
and then it became a cable movie phenomenon by the end of that five-year decade, I or excuse me, five-year period, not five-year decade, to me says this had resonance, even if it didn't immediately. So I'm going to go with a four on that as well. I'll end up at an eight. Dad, do you want to go? Sure. Same basic principles, which is the critics didn't like it. And, um, but the, uh, apparently the Academy did because of the nominations, you know, and I used to kind, you know, I wasn't, I was trying to establish a practice. I had small kids. I wasn't spending nearly the time watching films as I did, but this resonated with me as a public. So there was a certain aspect of something that I saw watching the trailers on this that i convinced your mother we needed to go the 40 minutes down to Reedsburg, Wisconsin, to the movie theater to see this and and go. Uh, And I think to some extent, this film, among a few others, kind of set my generation up for those who were, you know, young parents. We, We, you know, that found it was very difficult to get to the theater Having a DVD, or excuse me, at this point, it probably would have still been a VHS, and realizing you can watch films in your home and you don't have to pay for a sitter, you just wait till you put the kids to bed and then put the film on, made a lot of films that did not do as well at the box office into real treats for you to watch. So from a public standpoint, I went with a 3.5 for that reason, because I think this was one of the films that really pioneered that concept of home theater and and the availability of seeing a good film at home. And so that's where I went with 7.5. So you had a four for industry? Four for industry, uh, 3.5 for public. Okay, because you had forgotten to say that. Sorry. Chris, what did you have? So I think one of the areas that I think about when I'm thinking industry impact, I, I will agree that I think there's an impact element from a business perspective. Have they been able to capitalize on this? We've talked about it. It definitely has done that in terms of rentals and rewatchability, you know, cable. But I think the other impact that we see from an industry, industry perspective is does the industry attempt to replicate the formula or the format of this particular film? There's definitely elements of Shawshank that is replicating other prison movies of the time. The closest movie that I can think of that came after this, but it's also based on a book, is The Count of Monte Cristo, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, Very similar themes of hope and redemption. But if you really think about it, they didn't try, the industry hasn't really tried to recreate that lightning in a bottle, sort of speak. So from that perspective and business perspective and things, uh, I am definitely leaning probably more towards a, a three on this from an industry perspective. I think the impact and significance from a public view also has grown over time. The more people watch it, the more meaningful it is to individuals. It's one of these movies that after you've watched it, you feel changed. You feel, again, as if you've experienced something. 
I think for that, the impact from a public view is a five. So my total score would be an eight. Okay. So that's a 7.83 average between us. Novelty. I know, we've compared this against some stuff. It's a prison movie, but it's not. And it's got a lot of things going on that are prison circumstances. I, I think... The closest movie that you could maybe make a direct comparison might be like a Cool Hand Luke, but yet this is a, a very different feel to a movie than that, which is more fun and loose-fitting, and Paul Newman's a, a much cooler character. I, I don't know any way other to put it. And yet that has much more of a tragic ending as opposed to the redemption of this. If you want to listen to our review on that, I think that's episode like 31 of the show. So uh, that's available in our back catalog. But I, I just, I have a hard time thinking of the novelty of this. There are a lot of movies that are about prisons. And uh, realistically, when you have a prison movie, there's usually an escape. Escape from Alcatraz, The Great Escape, come to mind. Just other great movies that have this concept, but they're not this. So there, there's an essence that could be said as we've made a point of mentioning throughout this uh, show to this movie, but I'll also give it points for just simply being the best version at times of this, whether it's a writing standpoint, whether it's a humanity standpoint with uh, a great ending, but the, the cinematography, the score, everything put together, I think raises the level. And so just from a quality standpoint, I'll give it a full seven. Chris, do you want to try going? Sure. Yeah. Another good movie that comes close to this would be The Last Castle with Robert Redford. Similar overtones. Same thing. It has moments that are drama, moments that are inspirational, even some moments that have some comedy to it. And again, I go back, that's ultimately what Shawshank did well was you can't really describe what is the genre of this movie. It has a little bit of everything, which goes again into why I think it's appealing to a lot of different people. And so there is a level of novelty there, but I don't necessarily think there's a novelty when you simply compare it to other prison movies, because I think we can, as you just did, rattle off several other prison movies that are escape movies uh, heck, even Sylvester Stallone did an escape movie in prison, right? Which, by the way, I really loved that entire series. And <laughs> so novelty on this particular score, I would probably put it at about a seven. Okay. Uh, Dan? Well, I thought about this, and I thought about it, and I'm like, there's something, there's a certain aspect of this film it, it says something to me that I hadn't been considering. And then I happened to print out uh, something with some of the quotes on it. And it's the scene at the very end where Andy is out of the, uh, out of the sewer pipe and he stands with his head tilted back and his arms extended vertically from his body. And I'm going, Oh, the novelty of this is both the addition and the subtraction at the same time. It is novel as to the setting. It is not novel as to the fact that this is a religious film. Andy Dufresne is Jesus Christ. 
He is a Christ-like figure through the entire thing. He's wrongly accused. He's abused. He's mistreated by the authorities. He's constantly told that he's wrong about everything. Ultimately, he knows that he is not guilty of what they're accusing him of. And when he finally gets out of the pipe, he has reached his or heaven. He has reached his salvation, his redemption. And so I give it an eight for that because it's both an addition and a subtraction at the very same time. That, that's an entirely new perspective that I would never have thought to add to this film. But look at the, look at the picture when he's out of the thing. There's, there, I thought there's no reason that they made him or had him stand with his arms outstretched, looking into the heaven with his head tilted back, unless there was a certain aspect that they were trying to convey. Uh, anyway, classicness. This is your category. You can start, Dad. Classicness. I didn't find anything that was um, difficult about this. Even the fact, you know, because there's a certain aspect of homosexuality that's in here that could be offensive in more modern cultures. But even that, they said, it's not about the sexual aspects. It's about the lack of humanity that the the sisters had in perpetrating it. I think it was more an issue of control. So I did grade it down just slightly for that, but that was the only thing I found that was really problematic. I think it, it conveyed a certain element of modern culture in a large way about hypocrisy that exists with people cloaking themselves in religion, um, violence within the parameters of what should be a lawful society. I think it speaks a lot. Hadley uh, speaks as much uh, to the Black Lives Movement as anything that I can remember offhand, unless it was purposeful. So I went with a 9.5. Chris, what do you think? I think when I try to judge classicness, I have to do a little comparison. So I'm going to quickly ask both of you two in one word, try to answer this. If you were to compare this film against Casablanca, because we've already talked about that today, how would you compare the two? And, and I'm just, from a scale, from one to 10, if 10 is Casablanca, where does this movie fall on that scale? 9.5. And I'll introduce that in my own here in a second. Sure. I, I, there's a specific reason. I would go either an 8.5 or a 9. And the reason I would go less than Tom's 9.5 is primarily because of the gravity of the situation. Casablanca was so much about fascism and dealing with the horrors of what could happen versus a situation where it's not quite the people in the situation had some semblance, and I only say this, some semblance of control about their situation. So I kind of give it a little less. So I'm, I'm going to go with a nine based on that. I, I think there are easily two the, uh, movies that are held up as the standard of iconic, well, maybe three, but one has really fallen off in its classicness due to recent circumstances and readjustment. So you can hold up, Wizard of Oz, yeah. which I think we gave a 10 in this category, or if we didn't, it yeah. probably should have been. And 
Casablanca's in there. And then you at third, if you're just going to give it based on age and iconography, essentially, is Gone with the Wind. Right. Now, that's the one that's fallen off for obvious reasons, because it basically gives a pass to the South and gives it this heroic status that I don't think the rest of us necessarily accept as the truth in the way that the Southern textbooks uh, would like you to expect. But that, that being said, part of the reason I said 9.5 is that even though this is a much more recent movie, it has an element of timelessness right? because of the period piece aspect. And we've talked about that ad nauseum on this show before, that period pieces have a sense of 2020 hindsight that other films don't, especially when they're even more removed. You know, some films don't always have that. Like The Help has now gotten its own problematic nature to it. Right. And we talked a bit about that in the review of that episode. That being said, this to me will be able to be talked about in Universal regardless of when you're going to see it. And because there isn't a problematic subject matter, I I think you might be able to say the sisters and the overly cliche prison rape aspect that almost seems to be lurking around the corner of every prison movie may have steered too much into it. And yet it highlights the struggles of Andy in prison. Like what are the things that he's going to endure? The obvious prison guard abuse that they're just going to beat the living tar out of him. And the other one being uh, somebody coming after him for prison rape. Now, the only other ones that we didn't get to that are just obvious ones whenever you go through prison movies is uh, some rival gang that might shank him or, and I I can't even think of a fourth one, but there are just certain obvious ones that you feel like you need to check boxes in a prison movie. That's the only criticism I would have. And yet... I don't think any of this is off-putting to anybody, and that's why it's had such a constant stay among, regardless of age group, regardless of class, race, education, the audience has always been there for this movie. Yeah, so I want to put that in perspective because I think there's definitely some questions in terms of what makes a classic. There's a lot of arguments out there in terms of what makes a classic. Is it the age of the film? For instance, should we even put this in the conversation of is it a classic or not until it's been out for 50 years? And all these things that we're talking about, can we still talk about it 50 years later and say, yeah, it's sustained the test of time? But ultimately, I think it boils down to can I compare it to something that we do ultimately consider to be a classic, right? And there's a lot of movies out there. Like, can we consider Star Wars to be a classic? Maybe, yes. What's the difference between a classic and something that's uh, you know, a, a pulp culture sensation? And, and again, there's probably a lot of different movies out there that we can categorize differently that we may or may not want to say is a classic. But if we can clearly position this and say that this rivals some of the classics we know, like Casablanca, Gone with the Windsure, or Wizard of Oz, great example, And do we view it with the same intensity, the same acceptance, the same feelings? Like, heck, every time I watch Wizard of the Oz, still to this day, the moment that Dorothy walks through and into Oz and it goes from black and white to color, I am blown away by that one moment. 
And can I say the same thing about Casablanca? Yes, there are scenes in Casablanca where to this day, I've watched it a hundred times and I still get these goosebumps at moments throughout the film. Do I have that same feeling for Shawshank? Yes, absolutely. I just watched it last night preparing for this. And at the end, I found myself cheering. I found myself emotional. I found myself teary-eyed in sections. And that represents, I think, a, a, does it sustain the test of time? Does it age well? Yeah, sure. There's subject matters that may or may not age well. But you can still look past those subject matters and determine if the content, the cinematography, the music, the acting, all of that is still as meaningful the 17th time I watched it as opposed to the first time I watched it. In this case, yes. So I would definitely put this around a nine for classicness. And since I didn't give my score before, I kind of did, but kind of not. I, I went with a 9.5 on this just because I, I even think I could be talked into a 10. But I think this movie will play in kind of to your point, the same way now as it did five years ago as it will five years from now. And when I said I haven't watched this film in five years or something like that, but the minute you pick up and you can just keep going through it and it's never a dull moment. For whatever reason, this movie just works from about that minute they get into prison until the final moment in Ziwat and Neho. I don't know. There's just something about it. There's an intangible quality. Here's one more part for us to think about. And that is, if I was to say right now, favorite line from Star Wars, what would it be? Don't tell me the odds. Or maybe not a favorite line. Just give me any line from Star Wars. May the force be with you. Give me any line from Back to the Future. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Give me, without looking it up, any line from Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. But we did do a little research, and if I would have asked that to you, say, a couple of weeks ago, you may or may not have been able to find a line. I probably would have gone with, oh, really, who does look at, look at a man's shoes? Because my dad's quoted that multiple times. Too, so so it, I think there's an element of that. You know, we, we walk through our favorite lines and things. And the thing is, the repeatability of lines in this is a little lower than I think some of the other films that we might consider to be classics. And I think for that, you know, it, it's it's a memorable movie. It has memorable lines when you hear them, but it's not something that you're reciting, per se, on a regular basis. Sure. That launches us right into the most subjective category, rewatchability. But before we get to that, the average on that one was 9.33 for the three of us. So rewatchability, Dad, I'll let you go first on rewatchability, though. For rewatchability, I had a 9.75. This is about as close as I could get to a 10. I mean, I can pick up and watch this film at any time. But I will say that there's a certain aspect. I have to be in the absolute right state of mind. Because quite frankly, for rewatchability, a perfect 10 is probably going to be something that's more comedic for me. Simply because of my life being so... Um, serious in general, but at 9.75, I, I can't imagine a film of a more serious nature that's going to score higher than 
9.75 for me. And this film has got to be in that category of uh, a handful that I would rewatch whenever I have a chance and I'm not completely stressed out. Okay. Uh, Chris, we'll let you go. For everything we have talked about and for everything that we've shared so far, and we've talked about watchability multiple times, clicking through a channel and finding it and sitting down and continuing to watch it, I have to give this a 10. I gave it a 9, which is going to seem bad. But again, there was a reason I hadn't probably watched this in five five years because I'm like, do I want to sit through a prison film where there's some stuff going on that are some dour moments? And I remember the Brooks scene. But like I said, the minute I started watching it, you're entirely engrossed and you're just in. And you watch it straight through to the end. So I, I thought I would go lower on this. I ended up at a 9 and I, I understand where you guys are at. I just look at it as I know what a 10 is for my favorite films that I could put it on no matter what the time of day. And it's probably going to actually make me feel better. My 9.5s are pretty close, but aren't as like rewatchable. So this is just that next stage. I try and separate this out just by category and judge the film against other ones, but also by itself. So that's a nine for me, but all right. I think we're all pretty sufficiently high on. So the final average on that last category is 9.58. So to recap, first we have audience score. We had a 96% from Google users, a 98% from Rotten Tomato users. So we have a 9 for Legacy, 7.83 for Impact Significance, 7.33 for Novelty. Classicness, we had a 9.33. Rewatchability, a 9.58, and audience score, a 9.7 for a total of a 52.77. And that puts it in our top 10 currently between Pulp Fiction and Jurassic Park. Not a surprise it would be in the top 10, but uh, some of its contemporaries there. One of the pictures that it was nominated against for Best Picture in that year and one of the big blockbusters from the year before. So some 90s movies making it into the top 10. Remaining questions. My big one was what happened to um, all the money? Like if you're buying a hotel in Mexico and fixing up a very old boat, you have uh, $370,000 with which to play, which you clearly do not need to spend all of it in order to obtain those two things. And he's good with money. Uh, the equivalent in today's money would be $3.1 million that he walked away with. What do you do with all of it? Uh, remaining questions for either of you. I definitely want to see a sequel. <laughs> I would love to see what they're up to. You know, I think that's also a sign of a good movie when it leaves you wondering what are the characters doing now or what is what are the characters doing next? You know, we see them on the beach. We see them hug. Like, what's that conversation? What are they up to? I mean, I would just love to know that. I'd also like to know how much money did Andy leave him in the envelope in the tin can next to the oak tree? Every time I look, I see a 50 or something. I'm like, is, is there a couple hundred in there? I would have to imagine. I mean, it's a small stack. So, yeah. I mean, even like 500 bucks, which apparently, according to the novella, was what Andy walked into prison with would be enough to get him easily to Zihuataneo in 19, what, 66, I think? 
Chris, before we go, uh, anything that uh, you would like to plug on the show? No, if you want to get in touch with me or if you want to find out more about me, you can find me at chrishood.com. Perfect. And your podcast, um, where, pe- where can everybody find that? The podcast is called That Digital Show. It's a business podcast about technology in the Google Cloud. And you can find that on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being on. I know I usually speak for Dana, but uh, we enjoyed having you. And thank you for choosing this movie. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Had a blast talking with both of you about it. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are welcoming the last of our immediate family members to the show. My brother-in-law and regular listener, Keith Techmeyer, is coming on to discuss arguably the best war movie of all time for this coming Veterans Day, Saving Private Ryan, starring Tom Hanks, Vin Diesel, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, and Matt Damon. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or on Twitter at gmotepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate Network.